on this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. That man had a clown mask on, had a red nose that matched his hair. Reports of an actual clown attack in Ohio, shutting down several schools. One parent actually grabbed a gun while looking for the clown. The police were called, but they could not find the clowns when they got there. The clowns have tried to lure children. They're running around the property, creating fear in these children's eyes. Entering the McDonald's play place as a kid in the mid-90s, greasy fingers smudging the clean metal of a new Hot Wheels Happy Meal toy, my breath would catch when I saw him. The life-size, full-color Ronald McDonald statue with his striped arm stretched across the top of the bench, one large red shoe resting on the bend of his knee. Waist-deep in the ball pit, I could see him through the limp, dirty netting, And then, after running into the open mouth of a plastic tunnel and into the primary maze, I could still feel him there, still feel the cold, weird burn of his existence. A horror fan since the beginning, I would always break away from my family at Blockbuster and run to my favorite aisle. Always I would find the same VHS, Tim Curry's oblong head painted white, eyebrows sharp and sinister as fish hooks thin red lips, those hypnotic yellow eyes. The image terrified me, but also stirred up a kind of obsession. With my obligatory dive into true crime in middle school, I learned all about John Wayne Gacy Jr. and his clown alter ego, about a real clown, a killer clown, that came after children. Fast forward to 2018, where a fear of clowns is not only more widespread, but an implication now contained in the clown itself. The remake of It has smashed previous box office records, becoming the highest grossing horror movie of all time. For most of us living in the U.S., clowns are now much more associated with horror than with the laughter of kids. The 2016 killer clown epidemic saw reports all across the nation of clowns trying to lure children into the woods, clowns staring at people through the trees and wandering through cemeteries, stalking and lurking, clowns chasing people with knives. As you might guess, all the reports were hoaxes or hysteria, a viral urban legend. But this wasn't the first time that phantom clowns had invaded America. For this episode, I'll trace the history of our relationship to the clown as a cultural archetype, and then I'll rappel down into a strange theory known as the uncanny valley in order to explore our concept of creepiness and to find out why these painted creatures emerge from the woods when they do, most recently as America watched a circus-like election turn into the most bizarre show on earth. Why? Isn't that McDonald's hamburger delicious? Mom told me never to talk to strangers. Well, your mother's right as always, but I'm Ronald McDonald. (laughs) I know, you're not supposed to accept gifts from strangers either. But you're no stranger. You really are Ronald McDonald. (laughs) Okay, did I just find the original inspiration for the sewer scene in Stephen King's It? That was part of a McDonald's commercial from the 1960s, starring Ronald McDonald, who made his debut in 1963. 
closely based on the most famous clown at the time, Bozo. With Bozo's big red hair, white face, and outrageously arched eyebrows, he was a straight-up terrifying clown. But that simply wasn't true for kids living in the 1960s, when American clowns were some of the biggest childhood icons. There was a consistent 10-year wait for tickets to see Bozo the Clown's live show. Bozo's popularity caused execs to franchise out his image, meaning that actors in every city could start their own Bozo show with their own version of the clown. One of those clowns, Willard Scott from the Washington, D.C. show, would go on to become Ronald McDonald, a major branding success for the mega corporation. In the style of Bozo and Ronald McDonald, private contractors and volunteers everywhere would go on to become birthday clowns in the 1960s and 70s. One such volunteer was a well-liked Chicago-area man who owned a construction business. A man whose unthinkable crimes would end the era of the lovable clown once and for all. John Wayne Gacy Jr.'s arrest came just as America was on the brink of obsession with several moral panics we've already covered, with stranger danger, satanic panic, and a gay panic, which I'll cover soon. In the mid to late 1970s, Gacy sexually assaulted and murdered at least 33 teenaged boys and young men, their decomposing bodies found in the crawl space under his home. Just like every serial killer, the media needed to give Gacy a thing, something to sell newspapers, and they got their story when neighbors told of his interesting hobby. He liked to dress as a clown named Pogo to entertain the local children, even joining the Jolly Jokers Clown Club in 1975, a group that visited children's hospitals, fundraising events, and parades. To make the story even juicier, as he was arrested, Gacy was reported to have said, you know, clowns can get away with murder. The clown angle was just too perfect, too pied pipery, with mental images of Gacy the Clown tricking children into going with him, although he never used the clown suit to lure anyone. Mostly he just offered summer jobs to the teenagers and young men that he would eventually murder. Gacy was sentenced to death in 1980 after a very public trial, and from death row he continued to inspire a strange kind of fear as he painted his now infamous childlike prison paintings, including several of Pogo the Clown. There really couldn't have been a more perfect, real-life villain to click into the chaotic lore that was the 1980s. A gay pedophile that lured children while dressed as a clown. It was bound to spark something weird. The ramifications of the mass murder tonight continue to spread even to people totally unrelated to Gacy, his house, or those he had dealings with. The sad effects now reaching into Chicago's community of clowns. In the year following Gacy's arrest, we see the first instance of a panic around phantom clowns, a term dubbed by writer Lauren Coleman, who documented the original spread of the legend. It all started in April of 1981, when children in the Boston area started reporting men in vans dressed as clowns attempting to lure them with candy, much like the candy-offering murderous pedophile that parents in PSAs had suddenly started warning children about. The Boston Public School District sent out memos warning parents to keep a close eye on their children, that dangerous clowns may be attempting to kidnap them for nefarious reasons. Shortly after the letter was sent home, 
Both the police and the local news were alerted to the apparent danger, and as you can imagine, the local news hammed it up. The day after the story aired, Boston police were called to a local park where reports were coming in of clown sightings, including a clown that was naked from the waist down, but they found no evidence of any such person. There were reports later in the month from Omaha, Denver, Philadelphia. In Kansas City, a clown was chasing children with a sword. These sightings lasted throughout the 1980s, with no arrests and not a single sinister clown identified. Police soon realized that almost all the reports of sightings in Boston had come from children aged 5 to 7. Children were likely hearing news reports and hearing their parents gossip about this tale of a murderer who dressed as a clown. They likely gossiped themselves on the playground, trying to understand why something they generally enjoyed, the simple fun of a clown, had suddenly become a threat, and they felt like it might have something to do with the strangers who were apparently rolling around their manicured neighborhoods, searching for unsupervised kids, just like them. Soon after, the horror film Poltergeist capitalized on the growing fear, terrifying audiences with a clown doll come to life. And then Stephen King's It was published in 1986, with the now-famous clown Pennywise as its central villain, a villain that could morph into the personalized worst fears of children to feed on their terror and then their body parts. A villain that kept my mom from jogging alone for weeks, convinced that she would see him peek out from the rusty sidewalk sewer. Come 1990, Tim Curry would play Pennywise in a performance so brilliantly scary it seemed to seal the fate of clowns forever, so much so that it's commonly blamed for the first phantom clown epidemic, though both the book and film came out years later. The fear seemed to be passed down through the generations because by 2008, a study was conducted in which 250 children were polled to gather their opinions about how a children's hospital should be decorated. All 250 children, who were aged 4 to 16, stated that they disliked clowns as a possible part of the decoration, and many said that they outright feared clowns, a big change from the 10-year wait for Bozo's show in the 1960s. This phobia of clowns, which now seems incredibly widespread, is called chorophobia. But before Bozo and the infantilization of the modern clown, clowns were neither the lovable children's entertainers that they were, nor the terrifying monsters that they are now. The clown, across many cultures, has been an important figure that had a vital and unorthodox role in shaping societies for the better. For most of its history, the character of the clown had very little to do with children. Also known as the trickster, the jester, or the fool, the clown is one of Carl Jung's psychological archetypes, or categories of symbolism that stretch across time and culture, so much so that he believed that these common creations were part of our collective human subconscious, part of some kind of primordial instinctual narrative. It's true that examples of clown-like characters exist all across the world, dating back to ancient times and likely long before that. Clowns as we know them now have some roots in ancient Greece, where there was a profession in which a man would appear at funerals to do impressions of and crack jokes at the expense of the deceased, and he was allowed to make fun of the mourners as well. By roasting the dead in their community, the clown would help vent anxieties about death, making jokes that others feared to make. 
Other roots lie in England's royal kingdom, where clowns were known as jesters or wise fools and were seen as the holders of a crude kind of wisdom. They were allowed to make fun of the king, to a point, an offense that would likely have sentenced any other person to torture or death. They were allowed to speak plainly as well, to tell the raw truth to the king and even advise him in political matters. There's uh, very few, many people that don't understand the ways of the Hayoka ways. And there's uh, many tests for, uh, for a clown. You can call them as clowns or high rodeo clowns. They have many clowns in there. But uh, they're also spiritual, spiritual clowns. Before the white settlers arrived in what is now known as the United States, Many of the tribal communities had members that played the role of a kind of clown, and some still do. Considered healers and divinely ordained, the Hayoka of the Lakota people is a clown that acts out behaviors that are against convention, like riding a horse backwards or speaking an unknown language or wearing clothing inside out. The ultimate contrarian, he might complain of being overly full during times of scarce food or cover himself in blankets and shiver during heat waves or walk around naked in the middle of a snowstorm, all while saying the opposite of what he means. These sacred clowns certainly help inspire laughter to vent anxieties with their controversial behaviors, but they have an even more important role. They help define social customs and behaviors. They violate the norms of the group, they make a satire of those that do not respect social customs, and by doing so help reinforce positive behavior and highlight behaviors considered negative like greed, egotism, selfishness, and taking oneself too seriously. By being an exaggerated bad example, they are teachers, especially of children, of ways not to behave, and they help solidify what it means to be a good community member for the adults as well. By being an extreme kind of ridiculous, these clowns act like a mirror to those in the community, who in turn are more safely encouraged to examine the faults in their own personalities. The Hayoka like to shake things up, to question the status quo, to ensure that the community continues to examine itself. They make people laugh in times of stress, and during times of calm, they remind them of the potential for coming chaos and random disaster and even death to keep everyone from getting too complacent, to help remind everyone in both challenging times and easy ones of what is truly important, that is, love, friendship, family, and the health of the community as a whole. Like the classic ones we think of in the circus, it seems that a big part of the clown's purpose has been to humiliate, or put in a nicer way, to humble, which isn't a bad thing when it applies to megalomaniac kings or others in positions of power that need to be continuously humbled, but it can feel scary, can cause us that underlying anxiety, when it's us who might at any time get that pie to the face. It's that unpredictability that can put us on alert, that can make the fact of seeing a clown outside of a circus an especially nerve-wracking experience, this possible threat now outside its proper context. As the clown dampened down from a wise cultural critic into children's goofy entertainment, the sacred clown and jester archetypes began to fall away, and soon the killer clown, the evil clown, starting with John Wayne Gacy, moved in to replace it.
But one serial killer isn't enough to account for the clown's full transformation. There had to be something else about the clown that left us primed for anxiety. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. Do you know that weird feeling you get when you're around things like dolls or mannequins or wax figures or animatronics on Disneyland rides, computer animated human beings that just look a little off? They inspire in us this really particular, strange feeling. One aesthetics theory, called the Uncanny Valley, says that we are made uncomfortable by human forms that are not quite human a feeling known as creepiness or sometimes eeriness and its subsequent sense of revulsion. The clown, with its bizarre makeup that exaggerates the features, making them human but not quite, might help explain why they so easily became our modern monsters. We simply cannot read the face of a robot or doll or animatron or clown the way we might read a human face we encounter, and faces more than anything else give us the vital information by which to judge a human as a friend or a threat. There are many other theories attached to the Uncanny Valley that attempt to explain why, exactly, we have such a revulsion to these types of humanoids. 
Some theorists think that we have a natural revulsion to humans that appear slightly off because they might be carrying a disease, as someone infected with rabies might look. Others think these figures may resemble dead bodies, something else we instinctually want to avoid to stay healthy. Whatever the reason, the subsequent feeling that we get from this uncanny valley is not quite fear, but close. We call it being creeped out, getting the chills, having the hair on the backs of our necks stand up. A study out of Illinois' Knox College by professor of psychology Frank McAndrew and graduate student Sarah Koenig was launched in 2013 to better understand this unexplored feeling. They asked 1,300 participants, what is creepy? Those who participated in the studies talked about certain types of behavior, like standing too close or asking too many personal questions, especially about sex, or having an unkept appearance or an odd odor. Funeral home director and taxidermist, as well as sex shop owner, were commonly named as the creepiest jobs. The researchers believed that these answers proved what they hypothesized, that creepiness itself is related to those that break social norms. Social norms like avoiding publicly the topics of death and sex. At the top of the list of creepiest jobs was none other than the professional clown, a character for whom breaking social norms is kind of an M.O. Researchers noticed that our brains seem to approach creepy things in two conflicting ways. In times of fear, when there's a clear threat, we automatically react. We might run or fight or yell for help or take some kind of action. But being creeped out isn't the same thing as being purely afraid. A creepy threat is ambiguous. We can't tell if we are in real danger or not. And so, at the same time, another important instinct presents itself, one more in line with social protection than physical protection. Human beings are naturally averse to breaking social norms because, for our safety, we need to get along with the group in which we live. Judging a threat incorrectly and acting on it can get us into trouble, can cause hurt or even anger, a potential that encourages us to also protect ourselves in a different way by not overreacting, by staying within the same set of unspoken social codes. Simply put, we don't want to be rude because of what that rudeness can do to the dynamics of our social circle. And so, our brains fight with themselves, one part wanting to flee from or fight a threat, the other not wanting to break an important social code, which can create a kind of error message in your head. And so, we settle on reconnaissance. Our senses heighten subconsciously, and we become hypervigilant, gathering more information about this potential threat. This kind of helps me understand why I was so distracted as a kid at McDonald's. I had identified a possible threat in the Ronald McDonald statue, but also knew it wasn't socially appropriate to fight or flee from a statue, so my brain just sort of hyper-focused on the clown for the duration of my playtime. Maybe it's also why I was so obsessed with that image of Pennywise on the VHS at the video store, going back again and again to assess the ambiguous threat. In times of high cultural stress, Horror movies like It often soar in popularity. This is likely because they help us vent feelings of anxiety and fear, of the scariness and creepiness of the real world in a controlled way. This type of safe horror is a kind of play acting in which we can examine our fear while knowing that we're not in real danger. 
And with the mega success of the 2018 remake of It, it's clear that we are venting some current real-world anxiety in the safe haven of freaky make-believe. Perhaps that can also help explain the recent clown epidemic that made headlines for several months of 2016. The threat was initially sparked by a low-budget horror director named Adam Krause out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, who hired a creepy clown to stand in the street holding black balloons as part of a viral marketing ploy for a new short film. Numerous people called the police on this creepy clown, despite the fact that the clown was on public property and was doing nothing illegal. With thousands and thousands of shares of this social media post about this particular clown, the whole nation, much quicker than in 1981, caught fire with chorophobia. Amy, the sheriff's office has been working for over a week now to try and substantiate those claims that there were clowns in those woods, and so far they haven't been able to. One of them has all white face with black stars on around his eyes, and then one of them has a. Clown costume on and has red hair. Clowns hidden through the trees. The next reports follow the 1981 template, with a group of kids in Greenville, South Carolina, saying that a clown was trying to lure them into the woods. This time, with large amounts of cash. These clowns allegedly flashed green lasers at them and came to their door later in the night, rattling chains and banging on their windows. A mother from the apartments also reported a large clown with a blinking nose standing under a light near the dumpster. The children told the police that they believed the clowns lived in an abandoned house near a pond at the end of a trail through the woods. The police searched the property and found nothing clown-related or threatening at all. Another mother would soon call 911 to report a group of clowns with fake knives who jumped out of abandoned houses and bushes and chased her children from a bus stop. In Redding, Ohio, a teenager was arrested after making threats online, posing as an evil clown. Another woman told police that while smoking on her porch at 4 a.m., a man wearing a striped outfit, a red wig, and a clown mask walked up to her, grabbed her by the throat, and said, "I should just kill you now." And then I quote. Some students and teachers are going to wish they were never born at the junior and senior high school today. <laughs> students were locked down as teens used the scare to get out of class by calling in fake threats from killer clowns, leading to actual arrests. 500 college students at Penn State went on an actual clown hunt, following claims that an evil clown had been spotted on campus. A mother and daughter called the police on a 12-year-old boy who turned out to have autism, who was looking to surprise his mom with his new Pennywise costume. Love you, kid. The character of Ronald McDonald was put on hiatus from all community events. Clowns were pulled from parades and haunted houses. Sightings were reported in at least 32 states, with police and locals all over the country searching the woods for clowns, never finding any true threatening individuals. Instead, arresting and charging adults and teens all over for making false reports of killer clowns. Regardless, the news and social media continued to report on the phantoms as if they were a true threat to national security. A reporter actually asked White House spokesman John Ernest for President Obama's opinion on the killer clowns. "Quote: I don't know that the president has been briefed on this particular situation. Obviously, this is a situation that law enforcement is taking quite seriously." A police lieutenant in Palm Bay, Florida, said in a statement that, "Quote: The problem is that someone dressed like a clown could scare someone, and there's a possibility that someone could get shot." A little girl in Athens, Georgia, was arrested for bringing a knife to school to fight off supposed clowns. 
In Reading, Pennsylvania, a 16-year-old was actually stabbed to death while he was in possession of a clown mask by an older man who may have been scared by him. A couple men from that South Carolina apartment building we talked about, who had been told by the kids about mysterious clowns in the woods, had also fired their guns at random into the trees when they heard noises they could not explain. What is your emergency? Um, I... There was a clown. There's a clown in my woods beside my house. A what? A clown. Okay. He was just standing there. Did he say anything or do anything? No, he was just standing there watching me. Okay. Because I was taking my dog potty, and I kept seeing something over there, and I looked over, and I seen him, and I looked back, and I kind of had to reassure myself, and I looked back over there, and he moved over some more, and sure enough... (laughs) Just like the fear of satanic cults that we talked about over the last couple episodes, phantom clown sightings do pop up from time to time. But it's when these stories catch on that we need to pay attention to the current climate in which the panic was able to go viral. Many of the clown sightings were just annoying teenagers trying to film something for YouTube, or kids looking for attention by sharing urban legends and then freaking their parents out. But that's not the part that matters. Let's go back for a second to that uncanny valley. The uncanny valley effect is still largely a mystery, but some researchers wonder if it could have to do with empathy, or rather, the lack thereof. They wonder if the problem with animatronics and dolls and these computerized characters and wax figures and clowns is that they give off the impression of being soulless, of having no ability to empathize, and therefore being a possible threat to our well-being because we simply don't know if they care if we live or die. In the case of our most dramatic killer clown archetype, they might even laugh at our demise. While working on this episode, I was on a family trip to the Magic Kingdom in Orlando, and for research, I took us over to the super boring Hall of Presidents, where we watched as animatronic Ronald Reagan gestured mortifyingly from the stage, triggering in us a serious sense of the creeps. To many at the time, Ronald Reagan, who had just been elected when the original killer clown outbreak happened, was a kind of representative of the uncanny valley. With his red cheeks and his dark, molded hair, he seemed more like a humanoid that was play-acting as a person. We seem to often feel this way about politicians, because behind that too-polished veneer, the too-crafted perfection, lies the potential for catastrophic harm, a fact not lost on children in 1981, hearing news of potential nuclear war attached to Reagan's name. Toward the end of the Hall of Presidents show at Disney World, Trump's brand new animatron was at the center of the other 44, boasting nasally from the uncanny valley of these waxy American men. And with us now here live in Philadelphia, Daily Show host Trevor Noah. He's been covering his first American presidential election. How do you make sense of, from your perspective of what's happening in our country? I think that's the biggest mistake is we're still trying to make sense of something that is complete buffoonery. Donald Trump doesn't make sense. And the more you try to make sense of it, the less sense it's going to make. Unfortunately, there is somebody who is um, a clown, who's a dangerous clown, but he's managed to ramp up the rhetoric and I think through a crazy, crazy primary, got to the point where he is now the Republican nominee. 
the second wave of the phantom clown panic came 35 years later, during the circus-like election of 2016, as we watched the debates play on TV, as we watched a humanoid stalk and lurk in that red and blue uncanny valley, displaying the most bizarre public shattering of social norms many of us had ever seen. From his orange skin and pale-ringed eyes to his head of platinum hair and oversized suits, Trump was rendered as a clown again and again on the covers of magazines and in political cartoons, images that kids in 2016 were likely to absorb while sensing the extreme tension all around them, telling stories of clowns with fistfuls of cash calling them into the woods. Those who supported Trump during the election saw him as this ultimate kind of court jester, a sacred clown who humiliated the elites, who broke the perceived social norms of politeness and political correctness, of humility and compromise. Clown researcher Ben Radford believes that the sea of internet trolls that Trump inspired are yet another manifestation of the bad clown category, sowing chaos through the breaking of certain newer social norms, illustrated well by American Horror Stories' cult season, in which a group of real or imagined people in clown masks with similarities to the alt-right terrorized the main character, a woman broken by the victory of Donald Trump. To those opposed to him, Trump is closer to a killer clown than to a sacred one, a man lacking empathy to such a degree as to seem inhuman. A collective of anarchist artists created a billboard display of Trump as John Wayne Gacy's pogo, with the aforementioned quote, clowns can get away with murder. And on Twitter, Governor Gavin Newsom of California compared Trump to Pennywise. Much of our political battles have to do with what social norms our giant national community will be held to. And as we've talked about a lot on this show, those social norms have been changing dramatically over the last 50 years, and the culture wars continue to rage. Ironically, though, in much the way that the clown has existed to help shape society, Trump's behaviors have certainly helped much of the nation reinforce what we want our current social codes to be reinforcing community standards of decency by being a clownishly overblown bad example. In the years following his election, his personal brand of chaos has certainly fragmented the country, but it's also brought many of us together in new and deeper and more honest ways, holding mirrors up to ourselves to see what needs to change in our own personalities. This accountability can help us get along better as a giant group of vastly different people. Of course, Trump doesn't do any of this out of divine wisdom like the true sacred clowns once did. This is just exactly who he is. Regardless, as we all trudge together through the ambiguous, creepy, uncanny valley of our modern world, may all these clowns, real or imaginary, do what they were meant to do continue to remind us of who we really want to be and who we do not. It's undeniable that Trump's anti-establishment antics appealed to many, and it was largely this very contrarian clownishness that led to his victory. Now we see what happens when the jester becomes the king. Next time on the show... You might remember in the late 90s when Tinky Winky became a kind of villain, a possible indoctrinating character coming straight from the gay agenda. 
I'll explore the history of America's fear of the queer and, of course, what it's really about. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, assistant produced by Derek Smith, and produced and edited by Clear Como Studios. Come and find American Hysteria on social media. We've got your memes. We've got your extra content. We've got my face. You can find those links in the show notes, and please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show out. Have a great week, everybody, and sweet dreams. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.